Welcome to the Scam Economy with your host, Matt Bender. That's right. It's time for another episode of Scam Economy. I am your host, Matt Binder, and welcome, or I guess should I say GM, as the Web3 cornballs say, because today's episode is all about Web3. What the crypto advocates claim is the future of the internet. And uh, if that's true, then the future is going to suck. And that's because Web3 sucks. Every day it feels like a new project based on the blockchain crashes and burns. And that's the type of stuff they want everything based on. But what is Web3 and why should you be concerned? Well, let's break it down. And joining me now, it is my pleasure to introduce Molly White. Molly is a software engineer, Wikipedia editor, and the creator of Web3IsGoingGreat.com. Molly White, thank you so much for joining me on Scam Economy today. Thanks for having me. Now, I, I've been um, following your work for some time, and we'll get to that in a minute, your, your prior work. But let's, let's go straight to Web3IsGoingGreat. Um, and it is a fantastic website that basically chronicles all the wonders of the Web3 universe. Uh, and mm -hmm. by wonders, I mean complete failures, um, which seems to there seems to be no end in sight to how many of these will just fail and drop and scam and scheme and grift and all those other wonderful words. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a little shocked by the volume, I would say. Uh, it seems to be, if anything, increasing by the day. <laughs> right. I, I, actually, let's start. I was going to ask you, uh, you know, how do you keep up with it all? But I think, you know, a lot of my listeners are, um, are, are unfamiliar, probably, with what this whole world is. Um, can you explain for us, what is Web3? And I should add an addendum here that it, there appears to be a belief uh, and a true belief among the crypto world, because it seems like everyone uh, has a different definition, that Web3 means something different to everyone. It's convenient, actually, because if you're in an argument, you can just say that it means something different and then people can't argue with you. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a nebulous term. And I think most of it is just marketing Chrome, kind of. Um, but generally speaking, I use it at least to refer to sort of the broad category of anything that is being built upon the blockchain these days. And so that includes cryptocurrency tokens, NFTs, um, DAOs now are being built around them. Um, all of these projects that are being sort of uh, pitched as the future of the internet, the future of the web, uh, they will replace our web to, you know, hellscape that is controlled by Google and Twitter and big tech and all that. That's right. how I would define it. Right. No, I, I, that, that's also how I define Web3. And I think that's quickly becoming the, uh, whether they like it or not, the de facto uh, default definition. Um, yeah. I, I, I feel a little bit bad about my part in sort of um, normalizing the use of the word because I think it is really something that's been used for marketing. But um, it is, if nothing else, a good sort of umbrella term. Right. It's hard not to use the term. I mean, to explain to people where this, this came from, 
you know, Web 1 is probably defined as the, you know, the intro to the Internet, the early days. Uh, email, for example, is a product of Web 1. Um, then Web 2 was the social web, which is, you know, all these social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I, I would I, I guess you can say that those definitions, while also probably were marketing you know, uh, creations back when they were first came up with, like it sort of makes sense, the progression um, from Web 1 to Web 2 and where the internet went. But the progression to Web 3, I don't know if you'll agree with me, I think you will, uh, doesn't seem to make sense. Like it doesn't seem to, it feels like a backward step almost. Well, and I think the distinction that I would draw as well between Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3 is that Web 1 and Web 2 were names that were applied sort of after the fact. You know, there was like a huge transition in how, you know, people interacted with the Internet. It used to be very read-only because most people didn't have websites of their own, you know, and there weren't social networks where it was really easy to post your thoughts online. Um, and so when we transitioned from that to a pretty different sort of internet where everyone can sort of put content online, it made sense to sort of draw a distinction there. But now we have people just saying that, well, oh, it's all going to change. We promise, you know, and it's, it's like, well, maybe, but maybe we should wait until it actually changes before deciding if there's like a big version bump in the, you know, in the internet, you know, um, if it really does, you know, warrant a change from 2.0 to 3.0, or if maybe it's like 2.1, you know? <laughs> right. Or or maybe we somehow uh, went back to like 1.9 or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it is. It, that, that's a great point. And, you know, I, I, it's true. Like, I don't recall, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg ever saying, sorry, Microsoft, it's time to move on to Web 2.0. Like, that never happened. It just right. it just did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so your your site uh, Web three is going great. Which, by the way, for anyone who who hasn't caught on by now, is very is very tongue in cheek name because Web three is in fact not going great. In fact, I believe I'm probably gonna end up titling this episode just straight up Web three sucks uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, your site surely surely proves that to anyone whether you're. Uh, you know, whether you are a coming in with a bias, like obviously you and I do, uh, I would say our bias has a lot of factual, relevant data to back us up, but it is a bias nonetheless, or whether you're biased the other way. If you're a crypto lover or advocate, or, you know, you got a lot of investments in various different tokens, um, I think you got to look at this website and say, you know, at the very least, a lot of this shit is going, uh, you know, under because they're just either not well thought out or just straight up scams. Right. So what what are some of your favorites that you've put on your site? Uh, I mean, there there's so many. Um, I, I don't know how much you're able to keep up with it because I know when I'm like working on something like this, uh, that that's like consistent. Uh, I couldn't tell you what I covered. Like, for example, I couldn't tell you who I spoke to last week on this show. Uh, so <laughs> so I, I don't know if you have a better memory than I do. But what are some of your favorite uh, uh, entries to uh, your site? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does sort of start to blur together <laughs> a little bit, I would agree. Um, I think I have so one of the categories I have for the site is just bad idea. And that's where I sort of put things where it's just like, 
who came up with this and thought that this was a good idea? Because there are some projects that are just so out there that it's like, what are you doing? You know, the, the ones where they want to save the rainforest with Ethereum NFTs, which are themselves doing enormous environmental damage, like is a good example. Um, so that's clean a category the air that by I revving your engines. Like. You know, what's that? <laughs> I said, clean the air by revving your engines. You know, it's something yes, like <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, and it's I don't understand that. Like there there are other blockchains that are environmentally friendly, or at least more so, if you want to, you know, try to take that tack. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely one of them. Um, some of the DAOs really get to me. I find those absolutely fascinating. Um, where by and large, it seems like the introduction of sort of token-based government governance seems to be a way for them to shoot themselves in the foot. You know, there, there are stories of DAOs having sort of hostile takeovers because code is law, and if you can get something to pass, then that's how it goes, you know, and I, I find those interesting. And then there's the ones that I love, which are the ones that seem to forget that, like, normal reality still exists and like there are laws and regulations and things like that that still apply even if you have a blockchain behind your technology um so these are ones where like they just forget that copyright exists or like the one there was one where someone um decided that they were going to build a DAO around magic the gathering without getting consent from wizards of the coast which is the company that owns that product and they were so shocked and like taken aback when Wizard of, Wizards of the Coast sent them a letter that basically was protecting their intellectual property. They were like, I can't believe, you know, Wizard of, Wizards of the Coast is discriminating against Web3. You know, it was just this absolutely <laughs> bizarre moment. Right. I feel like I, I've developed a pretty good understanding of, of this world where, you know, I'm going to go through every one you just said. If it's a charity token, like it's it's promoted as it's like, you know, in my opinion, all this, uh, all this shit's a scam. But especially when we're dealing with a, uh, a token or a DAO or any Web3 project that involves a charity, outright write it off as a scam. 100% there's going to be some sort of uh, scam built in or they're not going to get that money to the charity they claim they're going to or there's going to be some blunder where only a very small percentage gets to that charity. Something's going to happen where it's going to all fall apart. Yes, or the maybe the better case scenario is they're calling themselves a DAO, but they're not actually a DAO and it's just like a fundraising campaign just like any other um, that's what I've sort of seen with like Ukraine DAO that just came about. I think Pussy Riot is behind that. And I was looking into it and I was like, so if it's a DAO, you know, is there the possibility that they could raise a couple million dollars and then the DAO all votes on not giving it to anyone in Ukraine? You know, could they just vote to like make a, you know, a castle somewhere, you know, or whatever people decide to do with all this weird, you know, all this money they suddenly find themselves with. But I was looking at it and it's like, I don't actually know if there's any, you know, Dow style governance in there. I think they're just collecting money that will, I, I hope, go to Ukraine, but I don't think it's a Dow, you know, and that that's at least the best case scenario, I think, because people, you know, who need money do get the money from the fundraiser and the people who send money to the fundraiser it goes where they intend it to go, but it's not a DAO. It's it's just a fundraiser. We've had those. <laughs> right. At the very least, I, I did. I was I was I am actually looking into a lot of this stuff because for a soon 
to come episode, I'm going to be focusing on like the Ukrainian uh, crypto uh, charity type uh, projects. And uh, you, I was recently looking at the Ukraine DAO, and you're right. There was no DAO aspect to it. They they did uh, according to the wallets that they dropped and the, the proof, the links they dropped, the proof. They did seem to distribute those funds, but they didn't ask people who donated, which seems to be the basis of a DAO, even where they should donate. Like they didn't even the DAO didn't even get to pick. Which charity, like the three or four people or however many people who put it together at the very top, they just distributed it to a collection of like five groups that they chose on their own. Yeah. And this happens like over and over again, or some some of the DAOs that do have at least nominal governance behind them. There have been cases where the project votes for one thing and then the leaders of the project just do something totally different. Like that happened with the Assange DAO recently. I was I was researching that where um, they promised they would only do one round of fundraising. And they're like, we promise it'll just be one round of fundraising. And they laid out this um, process that all governance votes would go through. And then they just totally ignored that so that they could do a second round of fundraising. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, what's the point then of everyone, quote unquote, having a voting share in this project, you know? Didn't they also end up, the Assange DAO, didn't they also end up like taking all the money and just buying an NFT with it? Uh, I think, I I don't know exactly what happened with it. There was an NFT involved, uh, a very expensive one, but I'm not sure how that shook out. Yeah. Right. I remember seeing a bunch of people very unhappy that their money to uh, what they thought uh, foolishly was going to help Julian Assange somehow was actually going to buy just a very expensive NFT. <laughs> it's amazing. Because, like, listen, like, the idea, like, like, a lot of this stuff, like, the idea, like, minus, the, like, take out the crypto stuff. Like, the idea of a DAO is quite interesting. Um, but, you know, we've been using it for hundreds of years and call it a co-op or a, co- a cooperative. Like, these things exist. They just come ahead, go ahead and add the blockchain or crypto to it, making said thing even worse than the existing version, and then go, look at this brand new technology we came up with. Amazing. Yeah, I think that's a good summary of a lot of the projects that I'm seeing, where it's like, we're doing something new and revolutionary, and it's like, no, you're not. This this is standard stuff. You've just sort of slapped a very expensive, inefficient data store on it that's not progress (laughs) right right and with with, sticking with DAOs because i just find them to be so fascinating because they do seem to somehow seem to collect the uh and this is really difficult to do i think the most foolish of the crypto fools into one one swath um you know the idea is also regularly pushed especially within DAOs. like oh this is very uh very you know this is the purest form of democracy everyone who chips in gets a vote and besides us even talking about how that's not even ends up being true, um, you know, in a cooperative, yes, every member usually gets a vote. But in a DAO, uh, I'm sure there are some DAOs that do it differently. But for the most part, it seems like the more tokens you scoop up, meaning the more money you have to spend and invest, the more votes you get in this DAO. 
Right. And there's no sort of checks and balances like there might be with, um, you know, companies where someone holds sort of an outsized share of, uh, you know, shares in the company. Uh, there's no, you know, board or whatever. And so if there are problems with the people who own those, you know, the majority of the tokens, there's not much you can do. You know, that happened. We saw that recently with the um, ENS project where one of the directors of it, um, they sort of someone surfaced some old tweets of his that were very like homophobic, transphobic, just really unpleasant stuff. Um, and they wanted to have a vote to remove him from his director position, but he held the most delegate, uh, like the the largest number of uh, delegated votes. And so there was this question of like, are we even going to be able to pass this vote? And in the end, it ended up being that the the sort of companies who employed him were able to remove him in the sort of standard way that a company would fire somebody. And it sort of didn't come down to the Dow that much at all. Right. And it's like, Oh, great. That was useful then. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's how decentralization works in this new world. Uh, A company sitting at the very top or investors sitting at the very top will be able to call all the shots in the end. Oh, wait, that's how things currently work. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's amazing. And on your on your site, uh, you have a, a total uh, uh, amount at the very bottom of all the uh, all your all the entries combined, what the total scammed amount is. And uh, it's it's amazing to see eight point four seven nine billion as of. Right now, March 8th, as I'm talking to Molly White, uh, it is amazing. I mean, also, we should add the addendum that a lot of that is also just like imaginary money that they've claimed and made up. Like, we don't really know how many actual, uh, you know, uh, dollars that we use in the real world were behind any of these projects. Absolutely. Yeah, I think if if someone decided to go cash out the $8.5 billion combined you know, hacked and scammed tokens, that might be bad news for a lot of the crypto ecosystem. But yes, hypothetically, that is sort of the amount that people have grifted and hacked and scammed over just about a year. I mean, this project does not go back, you know, towards the history of time when these things were first created. It only goes back like a year. And it's only the entries that I've found, you know, and the sort of totals that I've been able to cobble together. So there's a lot of asterisks around that number. I don't pretend it's some authoritative number, but it is a it's a decent estimate at least, and probably a lower bound, if anything. Right. I mean that's that's really the perfect addendum. Like you see that really high number that you're already mouth agape at. Uh that's also just a number of what's on the site. By the way, a site that I created in just the past year or so. Like it's it's amazing. Right. <laughs> right. So uh Continuing on uh, these various Web3 projects, there's one that always comes up as a hypothetical. And you're probably one of the most well-versed people on the planet in this realm. And that is uh, Wikipedia. Um, Whenever Web3 is brought up, it seems like its staunchest, strongest most uh, driven advocates always bring up like, now imagine if Wikipedia was a Web3 project. Imagine if all those volunteers who spend time editing Wikipedia, imagine they could monetize that. Now, your your whole background is, you know, you have a big background in editing Wikipedia. Could you could you first tell us a little bit about 
um, your time editing for Wikipedia and what that sort of entails? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I've been a Wikipedia editor for over a decade now. I started when I was like pretty young. Um, and, you know, that involves what sort of everyone imagines it might involve, which is writing Wikipedia articles. Um, but I've also actually been fairly involved with sort of this, the community governance of the site as well. So there is, you know, something called the Wikimedia Foundation, which is a nonprofit that sort of handles all the money for Wikipedia, but they do not sort of govern the communities. Uh, the communities sort of govern themselves. And so I have been involved with Wikipedia as an administrator. Um, I've also served a couple of terms on what's called the Arbitration Committee on Wikipedia, which handles some of the more serious uh, disputes that sort of arise. Um, and so that's been a huge, you know, passion of mine for a very long time is contributing, you know, free, uh, open access knowledge to anyone, you know, with an internet connection, or in some cases, not an internet connection, there are projects to provide Wikipedia access offline. Um, and I care a lot about that. And when I see people use that as sort of the example of what a DAO could do, or, you know, this idea that, well, what if we add tokens to Wikipedia editing, and then so many more people will want to join that project? I It, it horrifies me because um, adding a paid incentive to a project like Wikipedia, where people are incentivized by a very, very different uh, sort of motivation, I think would absolutely ruin it. Um, there's, there are people who are paid to edit Wikipedia. Um, and there is a process for people to do that in sort of an above board way, although it's very difficult to do well. But the Wikipedia community has struggled with that. We've discussed banning that practice entirely so that there's no, you know, it is not allowed to edit Wikipedia if you are receiving compensation to do that. Because as soon as like a company or an individual pays you, to edit on their behalf, it totally changes the game. You're not motivated to present them in a neutral, you know, well-sourced light. You're you're motivated to make them look good. And that's not what Wikipedia is for. It's not for someone to put their resume on or to advertise their project. Um, and so the sort of, you know, pay people to edit thing is like, no, 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 we need less of that, not more of that. Um, and there have been, in fairness, there have been projects that have tried to create wikis, you know, encyclopedia, encyclopedia wikis um, that have taken cryptocurrency and tried to make that a part of the incentive process. And it hasn't gone very well. They are not highly edited. The edits that are made are pretty poor quality. Um, people are sort of, it, you know, if you incentivize people by the edit, then people are incentivized to edit often and poorly. Um, if you incentivize people by the quality of the edit, then you add, uh, you know, people trying to game the system and, and like you vote for my edits and I'll vote for your edits and all that. It just like it falls apart in a lot of ways. And so I, I really get frustrated when I see that. Right, right. You know, like you mentioned, like there are like, I don't know if this is what you were specifically referencing, but I've seen like, you know, there's like black markets that like look for Wikipedia editors so they could pay them to like get their their company entry or their own personal entry. So it looks like their brand or their name is much bigger than it actually is. And it seems like, you know, that is highly looked down upon among the larger Wikipedia you know community. 
um, a thing that uh, shockingly has existed long before a blockchain or a token. I'm, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm, I almost didn't think it was possible. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, you're absolutely right. Like there is something and that's the sort of thing like I've mentioned this before and going back to our earlier discussion about like Web 1 and Web 2. Like that's the sort of thing that is kind of beautiful about the Internet as it was created and even like the web one internet and even in some forms, the web two internet that like that original ideal, like that thing that was, that the internet was always like the, the, the motivating factor for the vast majority of what the internet was supposed to do. And I think does is connect people and give people free access to literally anything they could think of an open source of knowledge and uh, communication. You know, Web One did a great job with the uh, allowing people to get a, this infinite knowledge. Web Two, with all of its various different issues, and obviously a lot of big tech players have gotten very rich doing uh, not so great things. But even with Web Two at its core, that original ideal of communication, connecting the world is still there, even with some of these really terrible companies. Um, but Web3, like they're basically saying, take all the good before that. And we want to literally take all the good from Web1 and Web2 and just learn from the nefarious, terrible stuff that we got from Web2 and just have all that like money hungry commodifying of everything just entrench all of it just everything's commodified and that's web 3 now yep apparently this is what we are aspiring to do um i forget who it is one of the crypto critics i really enjoy refers to it as the financialization of everything i want to say it's maybe the crypto critics corner folks um they at least mentioned it so it may have been one of their guests but um like people see that as the goal and I see that as the thing we need to avoid. And I think there's just a totally different mindset sort of with the the people um, who are working towards web three, where money is just this enormous um, motivation and they are sort of shocked when they sort of run into people who aren't as like singularly motivated by it, I guess. Um, and, you know, I should acknowledge that there's an enormous amount of privilege in being able to sort of uh, say, well, money doesn't really matter that much to me and I'm going to try to focus on volunteering my time. You know, like Wikipedia runs into that a lot where there are people who would make wonderful editors who just can't spare the time for unpaid labor. You know, that's, that's a problem. Um, but I don't know if the solution is sort of making everything you do a moneymaker or a moneymaking opportunity at least. Um, I don't think that's going to work in the ways that we expect it to or right, right. that other people expect it to. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I was thinking about that recently, like how one of the main things that is used, like one of the main, again, they always go with the hypotheticals and the best case scenarios. I mean, obviously they're trying to promote it, but like one of the main like pros that are used for like specifically like Web3 things and related to uh, NFTs, for example, is like, oh, imagine an artist gets to, you know, make money off their art by, again, what an NFT is for people who are just tuning in. Um, 
basically a string of characters that you purchase that goes on a blockchain that is connected to a link that shows some form of media. Again, it's not the actual JPEG or video file or whatever. It's this token that lives on the blockchain that points to a link that shows whatever. Um, but one of their pros for it is that an artist sells an NFT to their artwork. And then every time that NFT is sold down the line, they get royalties in perpetuity every time it's sold. But you know what's going to most likely end up happening is like anyone who ever tries to like if, if that becomes the future, uh, if they win. Um, anyone who ever tries to sell like a secondhand product they bought is going to end up having to share a cut with like whatever company made the product. Like imagine every time you tried to sell your used MacBook or iPhone, you had to give a cut to Apple. That would be the much more likely scenario if this Web3 future became a reality than artists suddenly getting the recognition they deserve. Yeah, I, I see that a lot where there's this sort of like Web3 will empower the little guy, you know, the, the struggling artist who's having trouble making money on their art, you know. And then, but you see that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you see these enormous venture capital firms, these huge companies like Facebook, you know, and, and various others, all entering this space. And it's like, do we think that those groups, those VCs and those huge tech companies all suddenly got a conscience and decided that they were going to chip in out of the goodness of their own hearts to this, this um, new future that's going to empower the little guy? Or perhaps they see that they could make a lot of money, you know, by accepting money from the little guy. <laughs> and I, I don't understand why people can't even acknowledge that, you know, it, it's very strange. Right. So, so how often do you come across like Web3 projects or some new crypto coin, like whether it's, uh, you know, a, a meme coin or some DAO? Like how often do you come across this stuff trying to uh, sneak into Wikipedia. I would assume it's got to be uh, a, a, a very relevant uptick in the past year or so. It's been going on for a lot longer than that, that people have been trying to, I mean, Wikipedia is, is used in Web3 and outside of Web3 as a way to sort of launder someone's reputation. You know, if, if there's a project that's just getting off the ground, they stand to benefit from having a Wikipedia article because that gives the project legitimacy. Um, and so people try to create Wikipedia articles for their pet crypto token or their NFT project or their DAO or whatever it is. And it's exhausting to deal with. I mean, there are so many people on the in the Wikipedia community who are working tirelessly to try to remove all the spam, all these basically like ads masquerading as a Wikipedia article. Um, another sort of prominent critic of cryptocurrencies is David Gerard. Um, has he been on your show? I feel he like he's on the might first have. episode. Yep. Yeah, that's what I, I, I thought so. Um, so you know him, of him then, um, and his his work on Wikipedia for a long time has been to try to sort of um, handle this and just make sure that Wikipedia can be a reliable source for things like cryptocurrencies and these, you know, if there is a project that it's not being sourced only to the, you know, the Coin Telegraph and all these sort of uh, bloggy style websites that are not doing much more than just republishing, you know, PR claims from the projects themselves. Right. 
you know, we before we uh, before we started uh, recording this, uh, we were talking online about uh, how we both realized that we had a uh, shared experience, I guess you can say, in a couple of years ago uh, when it came to a certain domain name registrar, uh, registrar named Epic, and I, I think you you landed on Epic's radar uh, for your Wikipedia work, right? Yes. And so, for people who are unfamiliar, and I almost feel like. Uh, I have a, another uh, show called Doomed, with basically, uh, which basically focuses on like right wing politics. So I feel like we could almost transition and do an episode there too. But um, let, we'll stick with the scam economy. Um, but and trust me, this is going into the Web three uh, area. So uh, Epic, basically, for people who don't know, is a domain name company that became very friendly with uh, the far right, and they became sort of a haven, like um, any uh, far right web. Uh, platform or service that was deplatformed anywhere else basically knew that if they wanted to keep their domain name safe at the very least, they can register it with, uh, register it with, or uh, transfer it to Epic, and Epic will be happy to host their domain name. And um, tell us how what specific caught their owner, who, by the way, everyone, his real name, Rob Monster. What caught his? What, what what did you do to him that made you catch his eye? Um. Yeah. So my sort of past life, I guess. My I mean, it's my sort of alter ego, I guess, as a Wikipedia editor. I uh, focus a lot on editing topics that have to do with far right extremism, particularly as it uh, is, you know, represented online. And so I had done a lot of editing around platforms like Gab. Um, I've written the article on Parler, you know, various other sort of right-wing online platforms. Um, and as I was writing the Wikipedia article about Gab, uh, I came to know of Epic because Gab moved their uh, domain to Epic after there was a horrific shooting um, and they were the, the perpetrator of it had been posting all this extremist stuff on Gab and the, the sort of more um, mainstream, I guess, service providers like GoDaddy and folks like that deplatformed Gab uh, after that all happened. And so Gab went to Epic. And this was also around the time that Epic, because Epic has been around for a while, but they only in maybe 2018, I want to say, started to sort of shift to this persona of really like leaning into the free speech, uh, platforming the right wing, all this stuff. And that was that was when they were getting their start. And so um, Epic was vocally supportive of Gab even after this horrible shooting had happened um, at a religious uh, location. Um, and so as I was doing my research about Gab, I learned about Epic and I started to read more and more about what Epic was doing. And I realized that, um, they were not only, uh, doing all this stuff, but they were probably notable enough for a Wikipedia article. There was a lot of press coverage as a result of their actions. And so I created a Wikipedia article just about Epic, uh, the history of the company, you know, it was an encyclopedia article. And of course I have my opinions about Gab and Epic and all these folks, um, but, you know, I'm a capable Wikipedia editor who is familiar with writing a neutral Wikipedia article, even if I have my own opinions on the subject. And it was, you know, a very, I think, fair Wikipedia article about the company. Um, but Epic historically has been very, very resistant to people describing what they do. They see this sort of um, 
neutral coverage of their company and their company's actions, which involves platforming, you know, uh, services that have hosted far-right extremists, uh, they see that as an attack on them and as, uh, um, you know, just like a campaign basically to destroy their reputation and all this stuff. And so I sort of ended up in the uh, the crosshairs of Rob Monster's ire, which has been a very bizarre experience. Uh, he has sort of had a, a grudge for a couple of years against me, which has become more and more extreme uh, as the years have gone on. Oh, wow. See, I, I got a I got a, a whole blog post on me from on their official website when I wrote yes. about them. But um, but I guess he's sort of forgotten about me. I'm sure there are uh, a number of uh, obvious factors as to why that's probably the case. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's but, had uh, more uh, important things to worry about recently, I think. Yeah. Uh, and um, but I'm, I'm so glad that you uh, explained it. Because you, I, I'm pretty sure you know where I'm getting at here. Um, your exact explanation of this platform that, or, or service or company, however you want to describe Epic, that caters to the right really does seem to have a lot of similarities with the way a lot of people in the crypto space act. It's it's been so uh, you know it's not surprising in the way that like there's overlap because obviously uh, ideology wise um, you know a lot of the very foundings of crypto is based in like libertarianism and we know that a lot of far right actors uh, who were deplatformed from like uh, various financial services earlier in like the 2010s they got into crypto early and they took donations via crypto and then they ended up actually benefiting greatly from uh, crypto's uh, rocketing to the moon um, and that aside though what's been interesting to me is that everyone into crypto and again over the past year or so it's gone way beyond the ideology of crypto. The vast majority of people now in it are just in it for the get rich quick scheme. They're not really, they're not, they might not even be, they might not even have right wing politics. They might not even know about that founding part of crypto. They just want to get rich quick, but then even they end up sort of uh, falling down that rabbit hole and using the same language to defend whether it's their project or just like even if they're not in the business end of it, like they don't have their own project, just to defend their own investment as like a consumer or a customer or investor or whatever. Um, it's overlaps with like that language, like the conspiratorial stuff, like straight up, like I, I've been uh, I was on QAnon really early on and the the exact language the QAnon believers use, I hear the same shit coming at me from the crypto advocates and it's almost like I, I check their profile page and I'm like oh there's got to be some overlap they got to be QAnon people too or vice versa none it's just that that the both of these different worlds seem to attract the same type of person yeah absolutely and I think there are sort of two things I want to touch on there so one is the language of um free speech and censorship resistance, which has sort of been a big part of crypto since it, you know, the day zero, it's since its beginning, that was a huge part of why, you know, Bitcoin was even created is to escape, you know, the quote unquote censorship of uh, governments and banking, you know, big banks and stuff like that. Um, and we see that a lot where, you know, these companies or various services that are very much actively supporting 
the far right and often have pretty far right politics of their own try to hide behind this sort of shield of, oh, we're not platforming the far right. We just support free speech and they just start using their free speech. And it just so happens that it's really mostly far right people who are on our website. But, you know, it's it's a free speech thing. It's not a po- you know political thing. Um, that's everywhere in sort of the online far right ecosystem. And it's happening again in crypto where it's like, oh, you can't censor your, you know, these social networks that are going to be built on the blockchain. You can't censor them. You know, you can't be canceled. You can't be shadow banned. You can't be deplatformed. All these words that we see from the very far right, um, it, it's happening all over again. And it's like, and the same thing's going to happen. You know, it's going to be the far right who benefits from this. It's not going to be the the person who's just, you know, posting their recipes or whatever online. Um, the second thing I wanted to touch on is the sort of adoption of um, the language of the people who are sort of the true believers. I had a really interesting conversation recently with um, Jason Kalanak, Kalanak, I cannot pronounce his last name, uh, the, the This Week in Startups person um right the, where we were the, talking he's the some people more likely probably know him as he's like a vc now but he founded blogger i think right yeah he has a storied history uh of various uh projects uh and we had a really interesting conversation and he has a more i would say moderate take on crypto than i do he's he's more willing to accept that it may have upsides um but we had an interesting conversation because he has talked to a lot of people who are the sort of quote-unquote true believers in things like bitcoin and just crypto in general who are often fairly extreme in their beliefs. You know, they are like hardcore libertarians or even anarchists in some cases. Um, And there are relatively few of those in the community when you look at all the other people who have come in, like you said, to try to make a buck off of it. Um, But the people who are coming in and trying to make a buck off of it are still trying to sort of adopt that language and those arguments of the sort of true believers around decentralization, um, around sort of censorship resistance, all these different things. Um, But it's kind of an odd situation because they don't believe it in the same sort of uh, extreme way as a lot of the sort of early true believers, which gets them into weird situations. Because if you are a true believer in something like um, decentralization, where there is no central party who can remove something, say, from a service, you know, that's kind of another thing about blockchains is they're immutable. You can't delete something once it's been added. And so if you start talking about these social networks that are built with like posts being stored to the blockchain, we're starting to see that. Um, and you start to question someone around, like, is it really a good thing that there isn't a centralized you know, company or group or, you know, whatever that can moderate the social network. Are you really okay with that? And you sort of start to push them on that. And it's like, no, they're actually not because they're reasonable people who live in a society and accept that there are things that people can post online that are absolutely horrifying, right? And so if you press someone who is not a true believer on this, And you say, well, what if someone uploads, you know, child sexual abuse material to this blockchain based social network? And it's like things start to sort of fall apart there, because if you're truly extremist and sort of, you know, all in on decentralization, you may have the opinion that like that's an acceptable risk to take for the trade off of censorship resistance and all sorts of things. But most people are not willing to say that, you know, it's okay if people post this horrible, abusive stuff online and it just stays there. Um, And so they start to talk about, well, oh, then, you know, we'll have these platforms that just, they won't show that. They'll be the ones who who, um, 
restrict the ability to see that. And it's like, oh, so centralization is that that's how that that's going to be fixed then, you know? And it's like, you can't have just a little bit of centra- centralization. It, it's kind of an all or nothing thing, you know? Right. So I think that's really interesting where people are sort of trying to adopt the, 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 the language and not able to sort of defend it very well because they aren't all in on it. Right. I, I do wonder how long that will be the case, though. Um, I agree. That's that's definitely what we're seeing. Like, like that's the dynamic we see now. But sort of like in the you know the er, late two thousands, early twenty tens, where it's like, uh, oh, uh, people who are uh, making racist jokes on four chan or uh, you know on social media, like on Twitter with a Pepe uh, avatar, they're just trolling for 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 the lulls. They're they, you know they're doing it to be trolls, and then. Little by little, the masks kept coming off of all these guys, and it was like, oh, no, wait a minute. They actually, that was just their defense. They actually are racist or white supremacist or full on neo Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see that. And I'm also curious to see how many people, I, I feel like I'm seeing it more and more where there are people who are getting involved in these crypto projects and in Web3 and stuff, and they, they're pretty open about it. They're like, no, I'm really just here for the money. I, I think I can make it very rich off of this. And I almost respect them for that. You know, it's like, well, at least you're being honest and you're not trying to couch it in these very noble ideas around, you know, banking the unbanked and, you know, allowing, you know, ending government censorship and all this stuff. Like, at least you're just kind of being out about it. Uh, I still don't think it's good, but, you know, right. it's it's progress. <laughs> right. I always say to those people, like, listen, I, I don't I don't I don't do financial advice like those crypto people who say they don't, but are actually telling you what to invest in. Um, so, you know, if you're just looking at it at a get rich quick scheme, listen, I'm going to tell you uh, why you should beware and not get involved. But it's up to you. Those people I don't really care about. People gamble and we could discuss how bad gambling is. But at the end of the day, those are the type of things where I'm somewhat comfortable where people need to, you know, be responsible and, you know, do things that they feel that they have a choice. What I'm worried about and what this show is more going after are the people who do want this to take over everything where you would no longer have a choice. Like if you wanted to be involved in the internet in any way, you would have to own tokens. If you wanted to use a web service, you would have to be part of a DAO. If you'd want to do, uh, if you'd want to like listen to a song, you'd have to buy the NFT. Like this is just, that to me is the scary part because that's when like, you know, I think it's going to be really bad when eventually I don't claim to be a Nostradamus and know when or if, but uh, whenever, if this stuff crashes at some point, a lot of people will lose money. But imagine a scenario where everyone's forced in. Imagine how many people would lose money. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. I think we have a very similar take on that. Um, You know, I, I'm a technologist, right? I'm a software engineer. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm fairly young, but I've been, you know, a human adult for a while. And um, I, I don't know why I specified human. That sounded very suspicious, like something an alien would say. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I've been aware of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and stuff like that for a long time. You know, they didn't just spring into existence in 2021. Um, but I was very apathetic about them, right? Because for a long time, they were a way to buy drugs <laughs> or um, if you were, you know, kind of inter- interested in privacy and censorship resistance and sort of that kind of thing, then there was sort of the true believer side of things. And then, you know, starting in 2017, they started to become sort of more of a speculative investment type of thing with all the ICOs. 
And all of that I'm sort of fine with, right? Like people are doing all sorts of weird censorship resistant, quote unquote, stuff have been for a long time, you know, decentralized platforms are not new, you know, that kind of thing. And that I think that's great. I think there's a lot of great work happening there. With speculative investments, again, not something I'm personally interested in. I am not a gambler by any stretch. But if someone wants to do that and they understand the risks and it's not hurting anyone, then that's fine. But in, you know, 2020, 2021, we started to see this sort of repackaging of everything as Web3. We started seeing these projects being advertised to the layperson, you know, rather than the gambler or the uh, technologist who fully understands what's going on, all this kind of stuff, you know, it's like, maybe you should put your retirement funds into crypto, or maybe the kid should play the play to earn game where they're actually, you know, there's a cryptocurrency involved. Uh, we started to see stuff like that. And then I was like, hang on a second, <laughs> you know, I can't really ethically remain apathetic to this, because what I thought was not hurting anybody, and I just wasn't interested in, has changed into something that I think is hurting people. And it's hurting people, you know, besides the technologist who just put, you know, a couple hundred bucks into it and lost it all, hurting, it's not just the gambler who, you know, is is willing to risk that kind of money. It's hurting people who are seeing this as an investment because that's how it's being presented to them. And it's hurting people who are vulnerable, you know, elderly folks who are being told by their younger, you know, family members or whatever that they should put all their money into crypto so that they can, you know, retire easily on it. Um, or children even, you know, one of the first projects that I covered in my Web3 is going to great uh, website was a NFT based project being run by a group of young adult fiction authors. And I was like, you're selling NFTs to children. You know, that's not acceptable. Um, so I, I think we have a similar view on it, you know, where like if someone wants to go gamble their money, you know, I'm not a gambler, but go do your thing. You know, as long as it's being done in a somewhat responsible way and it's not preying on people with things like gambling addictions, which crypto very much is, uh, I'm fine with that. But, you know, this is hurting people. Right, right. The funny thing you brought up, the selling NFTs to children, the episode, the last episode, episode five of the show, um, I spoke with Wilfred Chan, who actually visited the physical uh, NFT vending machine that exists in the financial district of New York. And he showed me what the physical NFT packaging looks like. And it literally was designed to look like a cigarette box. So, we're oh, so, wow. we're so even the physical version of NFTs are like telling children like subconsciously, like you want to buy a pack of cigs, <laughs> like you want something that's really unhealthy I wonder if they're going to need the, like, um, the, the <laughs> labels on them, like the cigarette boxes have these days. Right, right. And, you know, it's, you know, the you're totally right about the, um you know, if people want to gamble on this, like that's the thing too. Like that's what it is to me. Like people find like my old tweets from like the early 2010s, like from like 2012 or 2013, where like I was talking about Bitcoin and how lame it was then. Um, they're like, Oh, you're just angry that you didn't get in then. And I'm like, well, I mean, I also wish I picked the right lottery numbers. The last time I played lotto, like that's what it is. Like I, it's not, I had no interest in it then as a speculative asset. I still don't have interest in it today as a speculative asset. I wish 
I could not care about this stuff. It's what you guys want this stuff to become is what's making me care about it now. If it was still just another form of gambling, I probably would not be doing this show. I probably would not be talking about it anywhere near as much as I do. Um, although I will say that the one fun thing that I do play when it comes to crypto is a game whenever someone tweets at me, uh, do your own research. Is it a crypto bro or a QAnon believer? I never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so funny to see that same thing used for uh, COVID-19 conspiracy theories. You see it a lot. Uh, do your own research. And it's like, how am I qualified? It's a right. similar thing uh, with a lot of the crypto stuff. It's like, do your own research on whether this is a reasonable financial investment. And a lot of this stuff is like pretty complicated, right? If you try to look into, you know, yield farming and how that works or all of these loan services that are being you know, created, like there's a reason that a lot of retail investors don't do these things. One of those reasons is regulation because you can't just start up a loan business and like reasonably expect to get away with that, you know, as an unlicensed person. But it's also really complicated and it's hard to make informed decisions in these things. I actually feel very similarly around a lot of the stuff that Robinhood has been doing with retail investors outside of their cryptocurrency uh, involvement, although they have, of course, gotten into that as well. But, um, you know, Robinhood, when it came to be promised that it would you know, give access to, you know, retail investors to all of these things that previously you had to be some, you know, big wig on Wall Street uh, to have access to. And so you, now people can do things like day trading and options trading, and they can even invest on margin and, and all this stuff. And like, you see the people who are doing this, and it's like, Jesus, who let them do that? You know, like, and I'm, I'm again, I'm all for freedom and the ability to not need to have the kind of access that a Wall Street person might have. And that, you know, it's great that people are being enabled to do that, but like they are not being enabled to understand the risks or to, you know, adequately uh, make decisions around these investments. And so you see things like Wall Street bets where people are just investing all this money because they see people who are claiming to make it huge off of, you know, a hundred dollar investment that went to the moon. And they're just losing everything. And I hate that, you know? Right, right. Like, it, it's, it, like it sounds like a good idea. Like, make it easier for people to invest in the stock market so they can – so, like, just the knowledge of doing that or the money needed up front to do that isn't a barrier to investing. And I get that. But, like, they had to go further and, like, yeah, there's a reason why, like, it shouldn't be e – like, okay, you want to make it easy to buy, like, a stock, fine. But maybe there's a reason why it shouldn't be easy to, like, do a call option or a put option or whatever because you should know how to do it to be responsible enough to do it. You know what I mean? Like, that yes. stuff shouldn't be easy to do. <laughs> right. And you shouldn't be using as your source of information that anonymous Reddit poster drawing lines on graphs saying it's going to go to the moon because most of the time it doesn't. And most of the people who are doing this are not making money. Right. And that's, again, you know, I think Robinhood benefits enormously from the fact that people don't realize that. And I think a lot of these Web3 projects benefit enormously from uh, people not realizing that. And I actually think that media plays a huge role in this where we're seeing um, really irresponsible reporting happening where they're highlighting a lot of these projects or these people who do make money off of crypto and off of a lucky investment, or they picked the right coin, or they, you know, somehow made the right NFT and it, it made a lot of money. 
and they're not providing a sense of scale at all. Like if you were to actually provide honest reporting on how many artists are actually making money off of NFTs or how many people investing in shit coins are actually, you know, making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of it, I think we would be seeing a very different picture, but it's not happening. You know, we're, we're seeing this really irresponsible reporting happening. Right. Absolutely. I mean, CNBC, I feel like every other day there's a new story where they're promoting someone who got rich via crypto. And again, their version of getting rich is the number on the screen went up. Never the person actually uh, sold off whatever token or asset they had and made the money for real. Like the big thing for such a long time was the Dogecoin millionaire, the guy who held on to all of his Doge money and he like invested like 100000 and now he was a millionaire. Well, the guy never sold. He still didn't sell last time I checked. And guess what? He's no longer a Dogecoin millionaire. I mean, it's like... It's, it's, it's not even it's, worth fake millions. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, you yeah, know, and actually uh, to... You know, on the irresponsible reporting thing, we're seeing, you know, companies, you know, CNBC or, or these various other media outlets that are at least trying to be respectable publications. And going back to the children thing, I've seen these articles in these publications about how a 14 year old is now a millionaire because he did such and such or he got into some to you know token or he bought you know some NFT. And it's like, wait a second. <laughs> If you wrote an article about a 14-year-old who, you know, took money, put it into crypto and lost it all, people would be like, wait a second, why did this kid invest in crypto? That's not great. But because, right. you know, they can find the kid who somehow was able to invest money into the crypto market, who did apparently make money off of it, suddenly children gambling is totally fine. Right. And it's like, are you listening to yourself? Right. It, 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 it's so interesting how that works out. I mean, I guess it, sh it should be expected. Like, you know, you brought up the, the, the loan thing before, and I feel like any conversation I have on crypto, like decentralized finance stuff, always come up at the very end, and we never get enough time to talk more about it. So I hope you could come back and we'll have a longer conversation about other stuff. But, um, you know, it's always – when people ask me, like, what's, what's decentralized finance, I find, like – the the easiest way to uh, to to explain it, at least for me, for the way I like to explain it is like, you know, predatory loans. Imagine <laughs> like predatory loans, but you can be the predator this time instead of the big bank. Like, yes, that's what it. Like, the, how is that supposed to help the unbanked or the 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 impoverished or people in poverty or the working class? Like, they always claim this stuff's gonna gonna do. Like, this is this is just basically you saying I don't like who's making money off of the current stuff that are already preying on people. I want to be the one making the money off the current stuff that are preying on people. So I pretend right. to invent this new thing that is exactly those things. Yeah. And there's this sort of weird underlying belief that, you know, we've got this capitalist system, right? Cryptocurrency is enormously capitalist, works in the same ways. Um, and there's this belief somehow that a capitalist system without regulation will somehow trend towards equity, right? Like the idea is that we will bank the unbanked, we will provide loans to people who have not previously had access to banking in the same way. We will be able to send money to people who don't have access to, you know, solid banking. They'll be able to invest their money in this store of value. All this stuff will totally empower the marginalized and it will provide money to those who need it the most without any regulation. And it's like, 
Have you read a single history book? In what world has capitalism ever trended towards helping the people who need the most help, right? The only reason that a capitalist society helps people at all is because there are programs in place, there are laws in place, and there are regulations in place to make sure that people who need it are getting help. And, you know, I would argue it's not going so great, but that's a whole different podcast again. Right. Um, but it's like we don't live in a utopian society where everyone is, you know, helping the people, you know, lifting up the people below them. You need to be realistic about what's happening. We have unregulated lending happening. That's not going to help people. That's going to take money from people, right? And I don't understand how that's just totally, you know, they're totally blinded to that. I'm always really surprised that the people who uh, constantly throw the slogan, have fun staying poor at people who don't want to invest in their project don't really end up caring about helping poor people. It's, it's always mind blowing to me. <laughs> I know who could have seen that coming. <laughs> Molly White. Thank you so much for joining me on this uh, episode. Uh, your website web three is going great.com is easily one of my favorite places to go online uh, because it is, uh, you know, I, 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 speaking of the games I play, uh, like uh, who, who is it that, uh, says uh is saying to me uh do your own research i also sometimes play the game did i catch this specific uh scam before molly did on web3 is going great <laughs> i like, should make yes, a little I did. uh like, Ooh, i didn't see yeah. that one yeah <laughs> and i do the same actually the same exact thing with some of the other bloggers um david gerard and amy castor both uh published sort of like weekly newsletters that that often highlight other things that have gone poorly and i'm like oh i got three this week you know i didn't get all five but i got some of them so i think we're all doing it <laughs> we should put that on a distributed ledger called the blockchain and uh, just release tokens for each time we get it right and yeah i think that would work well uh Molly, yeah. where can people find you online and feel free to promote whatever you'd like to promote right here right now <laughs> so you can find me at uh, on Twitter, Molly0XFFF. Uh, I also have my website, mollywhite.net, where I do a little bit of blogging about crypto stuff in sort of a more serious way than I do on my jokey website. And then, of course, there is Web3 going, web3isgoinggreat.com and the associated Twitter account, Web3isgreat. Molly, thank you so much. This was, this was a lot of fun. I hope you can come back sometime soon. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Well, that wraps up this episode of Scam Economy. And wasn't that a really fun discussion about how uh, the future is going to blow? If crypto bros get their way, I should say. Because, you know, maybe they're not going to make it. But we will make it here on the Scam Economy. And if you would like to help support this show so we can make it uh go to patreon.com slash matt binder that's how you can subscribe to this show each month and support its growth you also help to support everything i do such as my other show doomed with matt binder which you can check out at doomedcast.com also subscribe to the youtube channel youtube.com slash matt binder where this show also airs as a video program and we also do a live post show where you, that's right, yes, you, can call in whether you're a crypto advocate or a crypto skeptic or whatever. You can call in and discuss with me. 
You can also support this show by following me on twitch.tv slash mapinder. And also, if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, you get a free Twitch Prime subscription each month, which means basically you get to take money from Jeff Bezos and give it to me at no extra cost to you. It's like you get to be Robin Hood. Uh, so just go to twitch.tv slash mapinder to subscribe with your Amazon Prime, Twitch Prime subscription. And of course, you can find all the links where you could listen to this show, Scam Economy, at scameconomy.com. If you can, and this is a real help, go to Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, and leave a review on each or one or the other. Your choice, I guess. Uh, good to diversify your portfolio, right? Um, leave a star review. Leave a written review. It is a big help to get people to find out about this program because this stuff affects our rankings on the charts on these platforms. As always, you can also find me on Twitter at Matt Binder. If you're watching the YouTube premiere, you just happen to get lucky and catch the podcast as soon as it drops and you immediately listen to the hour-long episode, be sure to tune in right now to the live post show at youtube.com slash Binder. I'm going to say patreon.com slash Binder one more time, so that's the last thing you hear. And with all that said, I will see you all next time in the scam economy. <laughs> <laughs>